Though your body be laid in the grave, Christ will come, the trump will sound, and this mortal body will put on immortality, and this decomposing, decaying body will become imperishable. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. One of Jesus' closest followers was a man named Peter. Now, we all have someone in our life who is like a Peter, the person who jumps out of the boat when they're not supposed to. They say things when they aren't really thinking. They, they're the extreme type. We all know someone in our life like Peter. And Peter had been with Jesus the night that the temple guard had come into the garden right outside Jerusalem and had taken Jesus to be their prisoner. He was there pulling out a sword to defend Jesus. And yet, even in that moment, he and the other disciples abandoned Jesus to be taken captive. It was Peter later that night who had the ability to maybe go up and defend Jesus at this sham of the trial. And yet it was Peter who denied the Lord three different times, even to a young girl. He, he said, I don't have anything to do uh, with Jesus. Uh, Peter was there who ultimately had the opportunity to defend Jesus. And yet that was Thursday night, condemned to death that Friday morning. And yet that Friday morning, as Jesus was taking his cross up the hill of Golgotha, Peter was nowhere to be found. By Sunday morning at dawn, it was Peter who was one of the first disciples to hear the news that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance of Jesus's tomb. And the most bizarre thing was reported to him that morning. And that was that the tomb itself was empty. We pick up this story in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 says, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then verse 7 says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they, were, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so that's the moment that we celebrate today, the resurrection. Prior to this, Peter is afraid, he's hidden out, he's denied the Lord, he's defeated, he's in despair. And yet, just a few months after this, we find this same Peter uh, in a totally different state. Now he's preaching to large crowds about the power of God's Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So this Peter, just a few months later, is bold, he's confident, and he directly confronts the same exact people who condemned Jesus to death. He says in Acts chapter 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. By the time Peter is done preaching, these men, the Bible says, are cut to the heart. That's a word that Christians use to mean conviction. The Spirit of God brings about a sense of guilt and a sense of need where you are drawn to the Father and you turn and and turning to God, you turn from your sin. And so these men ask Peter and the disciples with them, what should we do? Remember, these are the very men who many of them were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And Peter says to them, here's what you should do. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He says, every one of you. And then later he says to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In other words, turn from your sin. Confess that you're a sinner and you need to be saved from the wrath of God against lawlessness and receive Jesus by faith. And the the evidence of that faith will be this baptism as you show the world around you that you're a new creation. Place your faith in Christ to be forgiven. Step out from this crowd, this crooked generation, and receive Jesus as Lord. And the Bible says that in that moment, 3,000 people were added to the church. Peter stands up and becomes a prominent leader in the body of Christ. Why? Because of the resurrection. Everything in Peter's life changed because Jesus had risen from the dead. And then about 30 years later, Peter writes a letter to encourage Christians who had been scattered throughout what is now modern day Turkey. And these Christians had been displaced from their homes. They had been dealing with persecution and hardship. Many of them had overbearing authorities that were coming against their faith. Some of them had unbelieving spouses that made life at home miserable. Some of them uh, had neighbors around them that were skeptical of their claims. And yet, the church in the midst of a hostile and anti-Christian society was ultimately desiring to continue to advance the gospel. But they found themselves, like Peter had been years earlier, being put through a test. And so they, like Peter, needed to be reminded that this world did not have what they were looking for and that who Jesus said he was, was true. Now, hasn't this current global pandemic kind of sparked the same reminder in all of us that life here is not ultimately a life that's satisfied? I mean, many of us have found our joy in in going to concerts. We love music, so we love to see our band in concert. A lot of us love movies. We want to go and see the premiere on the big screen. A lot of us, we love to watch sports and we go and support our team or we like to do outdoor recreation or indoor fitness. And all of those things have now been limited or been taken away from us. Many of us have placed our financial and future hope in investments in the stock market or real estate or our employment. And those things have also uh, really been taken away from us as well. Many of our hopes have been dashed. We've put our faith maybe in our health or in our family And we've lived as if we're going to live forever. And now we're waking up to the sober reality that life is actually fragile. And wow, maybe even some of my loved ones could be at risk of dying. What Peter is going to say to the battered and bruised Christian in his letter is a message for all of us. We realize that we're exiles here on earth. We're not home yet. We're just here for a short time. Thus, we're different. We're passing through. My favorite phrase is we're pilgrims. (laughs) I'm not the only one. We're all pilgrims. So this changed man, Peter, starts this letter showing us that because of the resurrection, because of Easter, 
we have three things that no one else on the planet has. We have, number one, a living hope. And we're going to see that in verses three through five. Number two, we have a genuine faith. We'll see that in verses six and seven. And finally, number three, we have an inexpressible joy. We see that in verses eight and nine. So let's read through these verses and see how those three things make us different than everyone else in the world. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse three. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse eight says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So let's look at that first idea that Christians have what is called number one, living hope. And to do that, let's go ahead and zoom in for a minute on verses three through five together. I wanna to interact with the text for just a moment together. So let's begin with this first idea of the living hope. And we see this in the first three verses. We see where he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he mentions this inheritance and he says it's kept in heaven for you. Note that phrase with me and notice what is being kept in heaven. It's an inheritance that is kept for us. And then note in verse five, that phrase who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Well, who's doing the guarding? Well, we look back in verse three and we notice that it is the God and father who's doing the guarding. He's the one keeping us. And it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And note that phrase. He says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what we have from the Father. Now, when the Bible uses the word hope, this is different than how many of us mean it. When you and I say hope, often what we mean is nothing more than wishful thinking. We would say something like, oh, I hope the coronavirus curve gets flattened by this summer because I really want to go to the beach. <laughs> or we might say something like, man, I sure hope I pass my final or I hope that guy has insurance because he just ran into my car. Almost like it's this idea of hope. Uh, maybe in the midst of uncertainty. I'm not sure, but I hope that this turns out well. But listen, biblical hope is much more than wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a certainty. In other words, it's guaranteed. Biblical hope is a complete assurance in God to fulfill what he has already promised. It's not a dead hope. It's a, called a living hope. It's alive. It's a confidence in the living God that actually changes the way that we live. C.S. Lewis defined hope this way. He said, it's a continual looking forward to the eternal world. You see, a living hope is one that stays alive no matter what else may fail. 
the older you get in life, the more your early hopes start to dwindle. Maybe you hope to be a basketball player. That hope for me, uh, that died in sixth grade when I realized I can't shoot. And, and so the older we get, the more of some of our, our hopes uh, kind of dwindle and fade away. And yet the hope that's living is one that is not based on a political candidate. It's not based on some type of governmental system. It's not based on the evasive allure of money or in a fallen person. We place our hope in the God of the resurrection. So this hope will not grow you know, less and less over time, but it'll grow more sure. Look at verse four at what we are guaranteed. It says in verse four that we're guaranteed an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Christians are called co-heirs with Christ. The Bible explains that we have been given an inheritance. And so Peter points out what this inheritance does not have. And he uses three Greek words that are very similar, um, almost like alliteration. They all begin with the same letter. And so the first one that he says that we don't have is we don't have an inheritance that is corruptible. Literally, he's saying it doesn't have the germs of death. It's not going to vanish away before it's obtained. Secondly, he says it's not defiled. In other words, it's not going to spoil. It's not going to go bad like our bananas or our bread have gone bad. It's not going to have a stain within itself that disqualifies it. But then thirdly, he says it's not going to fade away. And this word is only used here in the New Testament. It's a botany term that actually means to not wither. This was the type of flower that the Greeks would make their wreaths out of for the Olympic Games that they would crown one another. And they would crown them with the amaranth flower that would, was known for being a flower that didn't fade away. And so Peter is telling us that this inheritance is not going anywhere. It's not going to get less and less over time. And then he says it's reserved in heaven for us. Just imagine that we have an inheritance that can never be taken from us. And it's reserved in heaven for us. And then he says in verse five, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You and I, according to this text, are kept by God. What an amazing truth. David Gusick says, keeping is not necessary unless there is danger on the outside and weakness on the inside. You see, to be kept by the power of God can be translated shielded or guarded. Notice that we are kept not by our own power, but we're kept by God's power. And it's through faith. So divine protection and final salvation are guaranteed for believers. What greater hope could this group of persecuted believers rest in than knowing that God would keep them by his power, both internally and externally, knowing that he was preserving them for salvation? You see, because of the resurrection, we have a living hope. And nothing under the sun, nothing on this planet can take that from us. But secondly, according to Peter, Christians also have a genuine faith. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So that phrase greatly rejoice means to be exceedingly glad. It's the word used of John the Baptist when he leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Mary greeted his mother Elizabeth. It's kind of a future word. It's an eschatological word. It's a word where we look ahead and rejoice at the victory that we'll enjoy one day. And so for now, for a little while, we have to endure trials. And he says, even though you've been grieved by various trials, in other words, 
you've been kind of in the present grieving, but he almost refers to it as being in the past. I would say it this way. The joy of eternity tomorrow helps make the sorrows of today seem like they were yesterday. He says these trials are various. In other words, they're multifaceted, they're multicolored. There's seven different New Testament writers that use this phrase. And so the idea is that we're all facing trials of various kinds. But notice why we face trial. Have you ever been in a trial and you've asked why? Why am I going through this? Why God? Well, verse 7 explains some of it, where he says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The idea here is that of an acid test. So when gold was widely circulated, they would use nitric acid and apply it to an object of gold. And when they did that, they would be able to see if it was genuine or not. If it was fake, then the acid would decompose it. If it was genuine, then the gold would just stand unaffected. And so one of the amazing things about trials is that they prove the genuineness of our faith. So in the end, the result is that Jesus is praised Jesus is glorified. Jesus is honored. J.I. Packer said it this way. Fellowship with the Father and the Son is most vivid and sweet, and Christian joy the greatest when the cross is the heaviest. See, perhaps the purpose of the trials that the early church to whom Peter is writing, perhaps the purpose of the trials was allowing them to endure those so that they would be more valuable in the Lord's hand to prove their faith and to prove it genuine. Listen, our world is full of phonies and fakes who on Instagram always have the perfect angle. They always have the perfect filter. They always have the right shot. The problem is they only have the cameras rolling part of the time. If we were to capture all of the mess behind the camera, the unfiltered life, we would see how superficial and how false many people are. But see, it was the resurrection that made Peter's faith genuine. It was an empty tomb that prompted the 11 disciples to go from victims to victorious. It was a risen savior who ultimately proves our faith. We don't place our faith in some religious notion, some principle, but in a person. And our faith in trials being tested is not that our faith is proven to be glorious, but it's our faith in the person who's glorious. And so that faith is expressed in verse 8. And that leads us to the third thing that every Christian has that sets them apart from the rest of the world. And that is an inexpressible joy. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What is so interesting is that Peter had seen Jesus. He had been there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had seen the glory of Christ. And yet, those who were reading this letter and you and I did not have the privilege of being there when the Father said, this is my son, listen to him. And even though we have not seen the Lord with our physical eyes, Peter is saying, listen, even though that's true, you see him with the eye of faith. And what that causes is an overflow of joy that's inexpressible. John Piper asks this question. He says, what gives joy its quality? I don't mean merely its intensity, but its moral character. What makes joy ugly or beautiful, depraved or noble, dirty or clean? The answer is that the thing enjoyed gives joy to its character. 
If you enjoy dirty jokes and bathroom language and lewd pictures, then your heart is dirty and your joy is dirty. If you enjoy cruelty and arrogance and revenge, then your heart and your joy have that character. Or the more you get your joy simply from material things, the more your heart and your joy shrivel up like a mere material thing. You become like what you crave. You see, our joy is rooted in the object of our faith, and that is the Christ who has conquered sin and death. And Peter says this is a joy that's, that's inexpressible. In other words, you can't find words in any language that do justice to the delight that we experience as we realize the ultimate desire of our souls has been truly satisfied in him. The word that he uses for joy inexpressible here is the only time it's ever used in all of our New Testament. And it essentially describes a joy that can't be experienced by anything here on the earth. He says this joy is full of glory. Why? Because of verse 9. He says, you're receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, for the Christian, the finish line, the reward, the graduation, the final level, the finished product of our faith is to be with the Lord, to know that we are saved. And one day, faith will become sight and we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, he described the beginning of this faith back in verse 3. Remember when we read it a minute ago? He says, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In that section, he's saying it's because of the mercy of God. He has caused us to be born again, to be regenerated, to be begotten to a spiritual resurrection. Now, listen, this does not happen accidentally. This does not happen by default. You are not a Christian because you simply want to self-identify as a Christian. Maybe your grandparents were people of faith, so you kind of like the idea of being a, one of the faithful. Listen, you're not a Christian merely because your family was or because you're an American. Well, I must be a Christian because I'm an American. You're not a Christian by being a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or an Independent. You're not a Christian by doing good works or by seeking to stop doing bad works or bad things. You cannot add a single work or subtract a single sin. You stand before a holy God who in his wrath will judge your sin. And the punishment for breaking even one part of his law is death. And yet, in his mercy, God sent his son who died on the cross in our place. Jesus, the Bible says, became a curse for us so that we, the guilty ones, could go free. But see, this gift of salvation is not for all people by default. It's only for those, according to John 1.12, who have received Christ as Lord. So to receive Christ as Lord, to say Christ is Lord, it means to renounce your sin, to turn from it, to be cut to the heart and to admit that you've fallen short of God's glory. And you need to be born a second time. You need to be born again spiritually. To say Christ is Lord means to turn not just from sin, but to Jesus, to receive his gift of love on your behalf. It means to renounce all other lords who have previously had complete dominance in your life and to surrender to Jesus and yield total control to him as Lord. As you're watching this today, have you ever done that? Have you repented of your lawlessness and trusted Christ as Savior? The Bible says you must be born again. So are you? Are you born again? You can place your faith in Jesus right now. I want to encourage you as you're watching this, 
if you've never received Christ, to turn from your sin, to repent, and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, some people like to pray and kind of consecrate their lives to Christ. Others, like me, who were kind of raised in a Christian home, didn't have a moment where I prayed, but I reached out to people who were strong believers, and I asked them to show me what it means to follow Jesus, and then I began to follow him. Now, for those of you who desire to be born again, uh, right now I want to encourage you, place your faith in Jesus. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait for another moment. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you're cut to the heart, that means that the Spirit of God is ministering to you. The Father is drawing you to his beloved Son. If you have trusted Christ today, we would love for you to do something bold for us. Would you let us know so that we can celebrate with you and so that you're not alone? You need to be plugged into a body of believers, into the local church, so that you're fed and equipped and so that you can grow in your new walk. We all need mature people to help us walk this life of faith. So comment. Let us know I receive Christ. Um, let us know your email, um, and we will reach out to you and share this incredible news. One of our pastors may reach out to you and encourage you and equip you. Today, Easter Sunday, represents something very personal for those of you who receive Christ. It's the day not only that Jesus rose from the dead, it's the day that you also can rise from death to new life. Now, for those of us who are believers, we are set apart from this world. And we have a joy that nothing on this planet can even compare to. We have a faith that's genuine, and we have a faith that's tested. We have a hope that's alive, a living hope, because our Savior lives. And so today, we celebrate the fact that Christ has come. He died for you. Uh, he took all your sin upon himself. He satisfied the demands of the law for you. The sting of death, that final enemy, is now forever removed. There is no condemnation, no hell, no fear. Though your body be laid in the grave, Christ will come, the trump will sound, and this mortal body will put on immortality, and this decomposing, decaying body will become imperishable. Death is swallowed up in a great blood-bought, Christ-wrought victory. And as the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ and then to die is gain. And so we this morning can celebrate with believers around the world that Jesus is alive, that Christ has risen from the dead. This is Easter. This is our living hope. This is our unshaken hope. And like this early first century church, we can rejoice with a joy inexpressible because of the genuine faith that we have, because of the living hope. And it's all because Jesus is alive. Father, we thank you for raising Christ from the dead. We thank you for what we celebrate today. And Lord, if there's anyone watching this that has not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, would you draw them to your son? Would the spirit of God bring conviction, a reality of sin that they would repent and turn from it? And Lord, that they would come to the Son, that they would be welcomed into the family of God, adopted in, now co-heirs with Christ, and be able to experience your joy and your peace. Lord, we thank you for what this time of year represents, and we celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. Lord, we pray this morning that our hearts would be filled with this joy, with the reality of the gospel, and that we would take the good news to everyone that we know, that we would share uh, this incredible message. So we love you. We commit this time to you, this day to you, and we thank you that our sins have been forgiven. We thank you for all that we have in Christ, and it's in his name alone that we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.